chapter number 15 tonight. Luke chapter number 15. Luke chapter number 15. It is a blessing to get a chance to preach on Father's Day. It is a blessing to be a father. <laughs> I, I enjoy it thoroughly. And um, hopefully tonight uh, we can dive into this and, and uh, get some help from the Word of God. Amen? That's the goal. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for allowing us to be in church here tonight. Pray, Lord, that you bless the, uh, the preaching tonight. Pray, Father, that you'd help us, Lord, as we open up the Word of God. Give us clarity, Father. Give us understanding. And I pray, Father, that you'd uh, wash me in the blood of Jesus Christ. Help me not to say anything that would be uh, a hurt, uh, Lord, a hindrance. But, Father, I just want to... Uh, Lord, let you use me to be a help tonight. Lord, we ask now that you'd bless this time. We ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Luke chapter number 15. We'll start uh, here in verse number 11. And it says, and he, and, uh, and he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him uh, into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the hus that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him." It says, and when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father have uh, bread enough and to spare and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say unto him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a, far, a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And, said, and, and the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said unto his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. You may be seated. Do appreciate everybody coming out tonight. But again, this passage, it, it, it directs our attention on a, on a man here who has two sons, the Bible tells us. And uh, I can tell you, um, I, had a, I had a father growing up, and I grew up in a, I grew up in a household that uh, you could say was unique in certain ways. My mom was, a, uh, was, a, was an Irish descent, and uh, my father being a, uh, a Roman Catholic, uh, Italian Roman Catholic at that. If you don't know anything about Italian Roman Catholics, then... Uh, it's hard to describe it to you, but um, we had a pretty unique uh, upbringing, I should say. And uh, my mom, she was kind of, you know, my, my mom, we always said it this way. My mom was the moose club, and my, and my dad, that was my mom's side, and then my, my father's side was the country club. Okay, those are different if you didn't know. <laughs> the Moose Club and the Country Club are a little different. And, uh, and my grandfather, he, he again, very staunch Roman Catholic in, in, his, in his ideology and in his, in his way of doing things. And um, 
And those two, and those two got together, probably halfway out of spite between both families warring against each other. They just kind of fell in love. It's kind of a Romeo and Juliet type thing. I don't know. And uh, either way, it, it happened. And I, I was born um, uh, up in Watertown, New York. And, you know, my father and my mom, we were poor, very, very poor. And uh, I remember I was talking to my mom years, years uh, later uh, after everything that transpired. And, and uh, I asked mom, I said, you know, how, just how poor were we? <laughs> and she said, your father was working at Ames department store. And uh, she was staying at home with three kids, uh, all the same distance apart as my kids. And uh, she was at home and she had never, you know, she didn't know how to really be a housewife. And my dad really didn't know how to be a husband. And so... <laughs> Uh, he'd work at Ames department store and he'd bring home about three, four hundred dollars, you know, every week, something like that. And so, uh, they, they, uh, very, very poor. And then when I was about five years old, my, my, my mom and my dad, they got divorced and, uh, it was, uh, it was kind of a, it was a rough thing. It was something that, you know, uh, took place. I was, I was young, but I think of myself, I was my youngest son's age when my parents decided to, to part ways. And uh, looking back, I don't think it was a bad decision necessarily. I mean, they didn't have the uh, greatest relationship in the world. But I remember at that point in time, I, now ha- I, was, I was segregated in my thinking. I had, I, had my, I had my time with my mom at my mom's house, and I had the time with my dad at my dad's house. And you want to know something? You could say what you want, and I could, and I could, everybody's got a pity story, and everybody's got all the things that they can say to try to tear jerk, and this is why I am the way that I am, and all this different stuff. But the truth of the matter is, is that in, in, in lieu of all the, the, the things that happened, I, I grew up, and I, my testimony today is, is I grew up in a family that I knew what it was like to be loved. I did. I know my mom loves me. I knew my dad loved me. Right. And uh, and I thank God for that. I thank the Lord that I grew up in a household where I can say, yeah, there was some there were some struggles. There were some things that took place. There was two. There was two people. They were young when they got together and they did the best they could to raise a family with no help, outside help. There was no church. There was no pastor. There was no mom and dad that were, you know, aiding in them in, in, in the direction they were on their own and they were doing the best they could with what they had. And you know what? If the, anything I can say is I know what it's like to be loved by a parent. Amen. That's a blessing. And that, and that goes, and that some of you have maybe have a similar testimony. Maybe some of you, you know, you, you didn't have the Christian upbringing that some folks in here have. But either way, we can, we can all echo and say, you know, I knew my parents loved me. And uh, at the age of 13, I've shared this before, but at the age of 13, um, we were on our way to Plattsburgh, New York, and uh, my sister was doing something with uh, the schooling that she was at. And it was, man, it was a hot July day, July the 3rd. It was a hot day, man. And I remember we, you drove, we drove an old white Jeep Cherokee, man. And the thing didn't have any air conditioning in it, and it was just a, a pile of mess. And my mom had a, had a green Dodge Caravan, and it was just as bad as the Jeep was. And so we were going up there to, to pick up my sister from Plattsburgh at this little school thing she was going to. So me, my brother, my mom, uh, and going to pick my sister up. And, uh, and sure enough, we get to this intersection. And this intersection, it's all messed up. And my mom's van dies. And I'm thinking, man, what in the world? Right? And my mom, she's, she's in the middle of this intersection. We're stranded. It's a hot day. There's no air conditioning. You can just tell that there's just all kinds of stuff going on, right? And, she, and we're an hour and a half away from home. 
And my mom has to call my stepdad. He gets in the Jeep, drives that Jeep up to Plattsburgh. We're sitting in the hot sun for hours, you know, and, and, and the van just is, is no good. And we get in that van, or we get back in the Jeep, and we drive the hour and a half back home. And we get home, and there's about 30 messages on our answering machine. And it's just like, what in the world is going on? And you have to understand, my stepmom and my mom didn't have the greatest relationship in the world, <laughs> Okay, my stepmom had called Child Protective Services on my mom. My mom called Child Protective Services on my stepmom. It was a constant back and forth with, with just stupid stuff going on and everything. And, uh, and so at first she was extremely upset that there was this woman calling the house, especially as many times. And she didn't ask for my mom. She asked for my stepdad, Randy. She says, I need Randy to call me back. And so that just made her even more mad, Right. And I remember my mom, we, we had stopped and got some food, and I was sitting on the couch and getting ready to eat the food. And my mom went into uh, her bedroom. There was a small hallway. We lived in the attic. It was a, a two-story uh, old Victorian house in the middle of a cow pasture. And literally, when we first got to that house, there was cows walking inside the house. That's how open this house was. We lived in a house that had no air conditioning. It had uh, no gas heat or anything. We, 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 burned, uh, we burned about 30 quart of wood a year to keep the house warm in upstate New York, raised on a dairy farm up there, and we were, we were poor. And we had converted the attic of that house into living quarters, basically. And our cousin lived downstairs, and then we, my mom, my stepdad, and my three, uh, me and my two siblings, we lived upstairs. And so we're in the living room, and there's this, you know, this slanted ceiling, and you had to like kind of duck your head back to go back to where my mom's bedroom was, and she went back in there, and I remember her slamming the door and pounding the door and everything else. And she gets in there and she calls her, my stepmom up and she gets her on the phone and, and that door swings open. Boom! That door swings open and I can hear her footprints just, just banging through that little hallway. And the whole house would shake, you know, because of those floors and the way that that thing was built. And she's just bawling. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I remember my stepdad just kind of like walking out behind her. She's grabbing my face, and I'm like, what in the world is going on? She grabbed my little brother and everything else. And my stepdad walks out, and I look at him, and I have this horrible feeling in my stomach. Just this, this, you just know something really bad has happened, you know? And he comes out, and the only way you could possibly give that information, he says, guys, your, dad's, your dad has died. And what do you do? 13-year-old boy, and it's just like I was the oldest boy. That was my, that was my dad. That was my, uh, I, I played sports growing up. I was athletic and did everything with my dad. My dad worked a lot. You know, uh, he took a job two hours away growing up just to try to make ends meet. He was a department store manager. He went from Ames, the old Ames stores. You know those, some of you in here know uh, those stores used to be around. And then he, and he, uh, and he was a manager at Ashley Furniture for a little while. He was a store manager at Big Lots for a while. And he just, he just did whatever he could just to try to make the ends meet, you know. And so he was gone a lot. Sometimes he worked, he, he, he took a job one time in Watertown. And it was a three-hour drive one way. He took a job up there because he was needing work. And if he closed the night before and had to open the next day, he had to get a hotel room so he could open the next day. That's the kind of man my dad was. 
And I remember he, he'd come home and he'd have, my dad was an old, he, he liked to ride motorcycles and stuff like that. And my Uncle Kim to this day, I mean, he's a Harley mechanic. He's, you know, he's, his knees are all shot now, but, you know, he's a biker down in Florida. And he just texted me today, Happy Father's Day. He's my dad's best friend. And we call him Uncle Kim. He had the braided beard and, the, you know, the, he had the chops. I mean, he, was, he looked the part, brother, <laughs> right? And, uh, and I, he had this old leather jacket. And uh, he'd come home, and I remember, you know, we lived in a trailer in the middle of a cornfield. And uh, he'd come home. And I remember I'd hear that door close, and I could hear it because he drove an old Ford Escort. It was, it was, uh, it was gray and rust. <laughs> and it was a five-speed, and it was such a bad car that, uh, you know, in order to get into fifth gear, maybe some of you in here have experience with this, but in fifth gear, it would pop out of fifth gear, so you had a bungee cord latched onto the, uh, you know, the uh, glove compartment. So when you threw it in fifth gear, you could wrap the bungee cord around it. It wouldn't pop out of fifth gear, right? And so, and so I could hear him coming from my wick. It didn't have any exhaust on it. <laughs> So he pulled in the driveway, and I'd run down the hallway of that trailer, and I'd meet him in the front of the house. And that man would wrap me up in a hug in that leather jacket, and I could hear the leather crinkle and wrap around me. And it was just this tight hug, and, and you could feel every ounce of love that that man had for me in that hug. You know, as a 13-year-old boy, at the funeral, they came up to me and they said, you're going to be a pallbearer for your dad. I said, okay. I didn't know what that was. They're like, well, when we get to the graveside, you're going to help carry your dad to the, uh, to the gravesite. So I said, okay. And uh, I get there. My Uncle Kim's behind me. And uh, he taps me on the shoulder. And I'd never seen that man cry a day in my life. And uh, I could see him. I saw a tear come down his face. And he says, today's the day you become a man, son. And I grabbed the edge of that coffin and we carried it over to the graveside. And we put it down on the little conveyor thing. You say, why do you tell that story? What does that have to do with what we're talking about? From that day forward, from the age of 13 to the stand before you today, before I got married and before any of that ever happened, there was something inside of me. I don't know. I say God put it in me or whatever it was. But I became fascinated with, with the thought of being a father. I mean, I, I was in high school, and you could ask me, well, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? And I said, I don't know what I want to do, but I know this. I want to be a dad. I want to have some kids. I want to have a wife. I want to have a family. I remember, I remember vividly, even after I got saved, someone would talk about the rapture, and I say, God, please don't come back in the rapture until I get a chance to be a dad, until I get a chance to have a wife. I wanted to be a dad. I wanted to be a father. But in, 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 the, in the most important time of a young man's life, to learn about manhood and to learn about how to lead and to learn about how to raise a family. My dad was cut short in those years. And so after getting saved and after going to Bible college, you know what I had to do is I really had to figure out if I'm going to be a dad and if I'm going to try to raise a family, I'm going to have to figure out what the Bible says about that thing. Right? Because I just didn't know. 
You know, I, I would hear stories about people's families, especially, you know, being, you know, getting saved and, and, uh, and eventually going to Bible college and getting in meetings and getting called to preach. And, and there was a bunch of young guys around me. That, I mean, when I got to Bible college, everybody was called to do something. I was like, what in the world are you talking about? God calls people to do things. That's just weird. Like, did he call you on the phone? What in the world are you talking about, God? I mean, everybody, I'm called to be a missionary. I'm called to be an evangelist. I'm called to be a this. I'm called to be a that. He doesn't remember this, but I was my first year of Bible college. I met Brother Spurgeon. And uh, he was at a blowout. He's preaching a blowout. And uh, I remember I was struggling. It was, like my, it was like my first or second semester there. I was struggling. I was like, man, God got to call me to do something. Because everybody that I know is called to do something. I guess I'm just a big flop if God doesn't call me to do anything. Right? And so uh, I, he's preaching. And uh, I'm sitting in the back of the church. And I was like, okay, well, God's got to call me to do something. So I just figured, I was like, oh, well, he's an evangelist. So God's calling me to be an evangelist. <laughs> That's what I thought. So I thought I would bless his heart by walking up to him as a first-year Bible student not knowing anything. And I said, hey, I just want to tell you, uh, the Lord called me to be an evangelist while you were preaching tonight. And uh, he has a way. I don't know if you've talked with him very much, but he has a way. <laughs> I just, yeah, yeah, it's very, very nice, very cordial. And, uh, and, uh, and he said, uh, uh, are you a student here? I said, well, well yes, I am. So what, what year are you? I said, I just, I just got here. He said, oh, please. <laughs> he said, why don't you finish Bible college before you worry about being anything? That's what he told me, right? It's pretty good advice. Honestly, looking back at it, it's pretty good advice, right? Pretty good advice. And i tell you something. I had to start learning some things, and I had to start watching things. And I didn't, I didn't have a close example, but what the Lord had done was he started putting men in my path that I could start to watch and learn from. And just like the Bible, the Bible has a great way of showing us people, just like Pastor was preaching this morning. You think of John and Dad. You want to know something? You want to say, I want to be a father. I, I, I want to be. We have young families in our church. Isn't that wonderful? Most churches don't have young families in their church. A lot of people, man, it's like when the older folks pass on, the church is gone. Well, you don't have it. You have multiple generations sitting in this, in this church tonight, and you've got people that haven't had kids yet, some that are just having kids, and there's all different ages and spectrums of, of families in here, and that's wonderful. But you think about John and Dad, what Pastor is preaching this morning. The legacy of this man is that he was able to put an imprint on his family that lasted far beyond, beyond his life. Right? He had, a, he had a great influence on those that God put underneath his care. I mean, what, what a better thing. Think about this. You have, you have this, this, uh, this mentality of John and Dad that says, hey, I know that there's an acceptable amount of consecration that can happen here. And you know what? As for me in my house, I want to raise that level just a little higher. I want to make sure that you know it's not just the bare minimum. We're not just going to get by. We want to be a little bit higher. We want to have a little bit more expectations for me and my family. And he sets it out. And he was able, by some miracle, that he was able to relay that to his children that they would handle it almost 300 years later that's the that's a testimony of a great father what about Naboth Naboth is sitting there and here's Ahab comes up to Naboth and says you have a great vineyard wonderful vineyard I'm looking at it. It was hard by my palace. I was out looking at it this morning. And man, that sunlight just come up over that mountaintop. And I can tell you, I could see all your vineyard across there. And it's just beautiful. I mean, it must have took a long time to get this thing up the way it was. Yes, yeah, sure it was, king. 
He says, let me tell you something. I really like that vineyard. You know what I'll do? I'll give you the worth of it in money, or I'll give you one that's just as good as yours. And Naboth says, far be it from me, king, that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto you. Right? There was something that Naboth's genealogy in his, in his lineage from father to father to father that they, were, they, they knew that this thing that was, that, was, that was passed down from generation to generation was so important that in the face of absolute death, Naboth said, I ain't giving up what my fathers gave me. What a testimony. What an impact that even while he was raised up in front of the people and there was a, a conspiracy and a coup behind his, his demise where the, the queen and the king were surmising with all the people around them to convict him of a false crime he didn't commit. And as I've given the illustration before, as he walks down through the center of town and the people who knew Naboth and the folks that had walked alongside of him and maybe were friends of the family, Naboth, just say that, just give it to him, man. They're going to kill you and they're going to kill your boys. Don't you care? Aren't you a good father? Don't you care about this? He says, far be it from me to give up what my fathers gave me. There was something that was so ingrained in them as men and as children that it lasted far beyond their lifespan. And I look at that and I go, man, God, in the age of 2022, there is a war that's being waged on biblical Christianity and more specifically, the nuclear family, which is a byproduct of biblical Christianity. You understand? And there is a war that is being waged on young men and older men alike. That it's okay to fall off of those landmarks that our fathers have set up before us. And so my thought is, how in the world do I as a father in 2022, if the Lord tarries, instill something in my family that will last beyond my lifetime? And you in here, the same question is asked of you tonight. What is it that we do? I believe that the Father in Luke chapter number 15 gives us a great illustration. And I know that maybe I've taken a lengthy time to introduce what I'd like to say, but I would want to run a few verses here to set the groundwork, if you will, because of the war that is being waged on the nuclear family. Go to 1 Timothy chapter number 3 right quick, please. We'll flip a few verses and then we'll set it into cruise control and finish the message. If you give me the liberty... 1 Timothy chapter number 3. Of course, we know this is the qualifications for a, a bishop or deacon. In verse 1 it says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a, desireth a good work. A bishop must be blameless, husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, nor striker, nor greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Look at what it says here. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Now, 
before I lose everybody here because you say, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not planning on being a pastor. I'm not planning on being a bishop. Listen, I know that this is talking about the qualifications of a bishop, but it's going to go a lot deeper than that, and I'll show you that in just a second. But there's this thought here, and there's this terminology, because remember, we're Bible believers, so words matter, and phrases matter. And when you weave those phrases throughout the Bible, you get a better understanding of what God's trying to say. And so the reference or the, or the, the phrase I'd like you to see here is he says that you could rule your house. You can rule your house. Now, you may have a certain thought of what that is like, but go to Esther chapter number one, if you will. Esther chapter one, we'll do a quick little study and then we'll get into the message, the meat of what I would like to say tonight. Esther chapter number one. Verse number 22, of course, you know the, the, uh, the background of the story. King Ahasuerus has, has a wife, and he says, hey, Vashti, come down and dance for us. And uh, she refuses to dance for him and all of his perverted friends. And uh, you know what happens. They say, okay, well, forget that. Get out of here. We're going to find a woman that will actually you know, do what she's told. Now, I love it when the Bible puts a truth in there and then wraps it in something that's so socially unacceptable that you have to get over the social unacceptability of the phrase in order for you to get the truth behind what he's trying to tell you. Do you understand what I just said? Sometimes the Lord wraps truth up in something so offensive that you have to get over yourself in order to get the truth. No one's condoning the pervert. No one's saying what he's doing is right per se, but there's a principle and there's something that is going to be said here that if you can get past that, you'll get some understanding tonight. Look in verse number 22. For he sent letters unto all the king's provinces into every province according to the writing thereof into every people in their language and every man should bear rule in his own house. That's the duty of who? Every male in the region. It was a duty for him to rule his own house. You see that? Oh, you mean if so if my, wife, if my husband asked me to do something immoral, I should... See, you can't get past it, can you? You can't get past it. What the Lord just did there is he showed you something. He showed you something that he requires in both testaments. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 16. Byproduct of the fall. Because after all, Eve was in the transgression, not Adam. You remember that, right? right. Now, everybody just hold on. Just give me a second, okay? Ladies, just give me a second. Hear me out before you tune me off, okay? I, I promise, I'm on your side too. Okay, verse number 16. Under the woman he say, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow in thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. Look at this. And thy desire shall be to thy husband. And look at, the, look at the terminology. And he shall rule over thee. That's Old Testament. I don't like it. It's Old Testament. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're Bible believers, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse number 3. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. One more. Ephesians chapter 5. You all know it. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is sub, a subject unto Christ, so let, let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. In everything. You understand here, listen, there's a, there is a commandment that takes place back in Genesis and it runs all the way through the New Testament. And that is that a man needs to rule his own house. It's not just for preachers. It's not just for bishops and, and deacons. It's for every one. You say, why is that? Because God has an order. And God has things, and if, you want to, and if you want things to work out, here's a good piece of advice. If you do things God's way, it'll be sweet. And if you try to do things any other way, you're going to make a mess of it. And so that tells you this. So if you get the roles removed, as was preached this morning, and you think that the woman can now take the place of the man, and the man can now take the place of a woman, and everything's go ahead, and everything's fluid, and everything's non-binary, and all this different garbage. What you have done is you have skirted the authority and the setup of what God wanted the home to be, and now what you have done is opened yourself up for demonic influence. You understand that? And so, for me to say that a man isn't born a queer... That is offensive. Unless it's a spiritual thing. And for me to say that a woman that is taking care of her husband and because uh, he's a bum and, they, and he wants to be a stay-at-home dad and she wants to reverse the roles, I'm telling you, problems are going to happen. Why? Because you're doing it out of order. You're doing it out of order. Folks, just because you're in 2022 doesn't, and I know that things have changed a little bit socially, and yeah, it's a little bit more customary for a wife to have a job, and it's a little, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that necessarily. I'm saying is if you don't have the right order, if you don't have the right authority, set the thing up, you're going to set yourself up for failure. And men, I'm telling you, that's the attack of the devil on you because guess what the church is made out of? Strong families. And so how does he attack the church? He attacks the families. And how does he attack the family? He attacks the husband. And he can use a lot of different things to attack the husband. You say, you're just on a hobby horse. I just gave you five verses to show you I'm not on a hobby horse. Amen? You say, how does this relate to Luke chapter 15? Because look at what it says in verse 11. And he said, a certain man had two sons. You say, how in the world, if I'm supposed to rule my house, how do I do it? You ever seen someone try to rule their house the wrong way? I have. You see the guys, you know, they, they come home and their wife's carrying the, the diaper bag and all the Bibles and the kids are behind him and he's walking and he's got his Bible like this and he's walking to church like he's the grand ball. I'm leading my house. You think you're leading, but ain't nobody following you. You think they're following you because they're behind you, but you realize that you can't lead that way. That's weak leadership. That's horrible leadership. Amen? You can't lead like that. 
So if that's the case, everybody has their own opinion about how, what does it look like to lead your house? How do, how do, you, how, how do we instill? Because after all, you see, you see the commandment, right? And then he tells you what the end product is. The end product is, is I want to influence my family that it, something lasts far beyond when I'm gone. Not something superficial, not something fake, something real that lasts the test of time. And, I, and, and when I pass on or I come off the scene, it doesn't go down the tubes when I'm gone. I want, to, I want something that lasts. I want to influence that lasts. So we show, we're showing you the end product that we're desiring, and we see the, the weight of the gravity of the commandment, which is to rule your own house. What does it look like? I'm a visual learner. Okay? I have a hard time reading instructions and then taking the words and producing them in my head and then doing it. If you show me how to do it, I can do it. <laughs> right? You know, here in verse 11, it says, And he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. You want to the first thing I see when I read this passage? You know what I'm doing? I'm looking for the mother. And she's not anywhere in the passage. You say, that means she's in subjection. She's not talking. That's not what I'm saying. Because you want to know what, if you study your Bible, if you, okay, how serious are you about being a dad? I'm going to just test you. Maybe you've done this. I'm not trying to put you under false conviction. How many of you can give me a few verses on being a dad? I'm not asking for hands right now. This is just between you and the Lord, okay? How many verses do you know about being a father? How many verses do you know about rearing children? Spare the rod, spoil the child. You sure? <laughs> right? Is every, is every verse you know about child rearing have to do with beating your kid? You want to know the, first, you know what, you want to know the thing that has impressed on me the most is as I've, I've been doing this now for, uh, been married for over 10 years and been a dad for a little over nine years now, is how much me and their mom being on the same page is so very important. You say, how come the mom's not in the passage? It's not because she's a, she is just this subservient little woman barefoot in the basement looking up, making sure her master's happy. It's not that at all. It's that there are common ground and the decision that that man made and had to deal with those boys, he didn't have to worry about her chirping and saying, well, why did you do it that way? You want to know why? Because they were on the same page. They had, they had a relationship where, guess what? He had a relationship that was so much with his wife that it was, they were the same. They thought the same. You understand? The Bible has a lot to say about husbands and their wives more so than husbands or, or excuse me, fathers and their children. Why is that? Because the example that is set between the relationship between a father and a mother is probably more important than the disciplinary stuff. I didn't say the disciplinary stuff wasn't important. But the example of the relationship between mom and dad is probably more important. Amen. Say, how do you know that? Because there's lost people that don't whoop their stinking kids and their kids turn out just fine. They love their parents. Explain that one. You think you got to be a Bible believer in order to raise kids? you got to be pretty delusional to think that. People are doing it all over the place. And some of them are pretty good kids. They're not saved. <laughs> I'm not saying that. You know what? It's funny. Listen to this. God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. And 
Sarah's having a hard time believe she can have a baby. Right? God, the angel, comes down. He says, hey, let me go get you something to eat, okay? And they're talking back and forth. He looks over to his, his angel and says, hey, why should I keep Abraham in the dark? Why should, I, why should I keep Abraham in the dark? You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you just so that if you want to turn there, it's, it's, it's uh, Genesis chapter 18. But he says something really funny here, and you've got to pick up on it. This is a passage where uh, she's laughing about getting, getting pregnant in her old age. Right? And in verse number 17, he says this. He says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, shall become. Okay? Shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Look at verse 19. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. How do you know he's going to rule his kids right? Because you saw how he dealt with his wife. You see that? Why is he going to hold back? He says, I, he says, I, know, I know Abraham. He's going, to, he's going to deal with his kids the right way. How did he know that? They were talking about her getting pregnant. You want to know why? Because he saw how he dealt with his wife. <sighs> you know what? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 tells us that we need to dwell with our wives according to knowledge. And that we need to belittle them as the weaker vessel. Oh, sorry, that's, that's not what it said. You know what the word he uses? Honor. You honor her as the weaker vessel. Because when he's talking about the body of Christ, even the less calmly parts, they're, they're important. And you esteem them higher. Because the weight that God puts on a woman, thank God he didn't put that same weight on me. He said, oh, I got a lot of pressure on me as a man. I'm sorry, but I think I'd rather be the guy in charge than the one that has to follow the rule of the moron that I'm with, no matter how dumb he may be. Amen? Listen, my wife has followed me through some really stupid decisions. I don't envy her position at all. And I'm the one up here. I'm the one up here that gets to be in front of everybody. And she's the one that sits there all quiet and doesn't get any accolades and doesn't get any recognition, doesn't get any, any of that. Hey, listen, I think I got it pretty good. I prefer my role. <laughs> right? You know what? It's funny. Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, he says, I'm sending you to a stiff-necked people. I'm sending you to people that don't want to listen. You know what he tells them all the things that in the nation of Israel is. And then you know what he tells them? He says, you know what? But don't you be rebellious. And he says, and you get your face and you eat the roll of that book and you get it in you. You know what that shows us? That a great prophet like Ezekiel, when he's because everybody loves to complain about what their wife doesn't do. Right? Well, I wish my wife was, you know, more this way, and I wish my wife did this, and I wish. And I wish, and I wish, and you got your wish list of what you think your wife should be, or in your head you think this is what your wife, and that's the, that's the basis of your arguments, a lot of them, right? And so, you know what the principle of God shows us with Ezekiel? That if you're going to change somebody else, the way to change somebody else is to first change yourself. You see that? I've had lots of... Listen, I'm not the guy, and, and, and you in here that I've, I've had the privilege 
of being in the youth ministry stuff now where there's been teens that have come through the, the teen class, not just at this church, but remember I was, at a, I was a youth pastor for five years at another church before I came over here. And so I got a lot of teens from that that are now grown and have kids and have done their own little things out in the world and everything else. And I've been a part of a lot of marriages and a lot of, you know, hey, we're getting together and so-and-so is going to get married to so-and-so. And, and they come up to me and they talk to me. I never wanted to be the guy that's, that, that always, you know, the person that goes, well, you know, I've been married now for two years, and I could tell you, it's, you know, it's just going to get worse. You know, those people, like, you, you decide to get married, you get engaged, and then you have all these young married people come up to you, and they just start telling you everything they know about being married. It's like, shut up, dude. Don't even say anything. I never wanted to be that guy. And if you're married in here and you came through the youth group, you know that I didn't do that to you. Because it makes me cringe. It just, ugh, I don't even, I just, I just hate that. Right? If you, have, if you have a question, you come ask a question. I'm not going to go tell you my two cents. Right? But I've had some people come up and talk to me. And a couple, they say, hey, let's go out to lunch and talk about some stuff. And you want to know something? They've, they've said, well, this, this, this. And, you know, it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And so on and so forth. And it's like, well, you could tell me everything that you see in her. How much have you changed? Right? How much have you changed? Because if, if, if me ruling my house kind of hinders on the fact that me and my wife have to have a good relationship, well, I'm not going to counsel you to get a divorce, right? I'm not going to say, hey, you should go get a divorce. <laughs> no preacher should say that, right? <laughs> so, see, why, why, is, why, is that, why is that get that response? Because in the world you live in today, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter to the most of the people in the world today. Oh, it didn't work out. We're just not compatible. We just grew apart. No, it's work. It's hard. And you find stuff about somebody once you start living with them that you didn't know when you were talking five hours a day. And you realize they stink. And you realize that they're a person and they don't pick up their dirty clothes and they have all kinds of issues. And you know what you have to do? You have to be committed to that person and say, we're going to work it out. And you can't always rely on somebody, especially men in here. I'm talking to you because it's Father's Day. You can't rely on your wife to be the one that changes. you got to be the one that changes. Well, I'm going to tell her where all the things, all the verses in the Bible is where she's going to have to do what she's supposed to do. Well, how about all the verses in the Bible where you're supposed to do what you're supposed to do? Seriously. You know what? I love this one. Go to Proverbs 31. I was talking to a guy about this a couple weeks ago. I think pastor said it last week. Everybody wants a Proverbs 31 wife. Let me ask you this. Are you a Proverbs 31 husband? How about you, if, 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 if I have to, if I have to, if, my, if the assumption is that I have to change myself in order for me to change somebody else, and there'd be things in my wife that I like to see different, right? And I'm not saying there is. My wife's perfect, so don't worry about it. All right? Uh, so that just means that I have to change something about myself. Well, if, so if we look at Proverbs 31 through that lens, well, then let's read it the way it says, verse 11. The heart of her husband doth uh, safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. Okay, how should it read? The heart of his wife doth safely trust in him so that she shall have no need of spoil. Can your wife trust you? Or are you just 
going back and forth and flipping, and you can't, you can't get a grasp on life, and you're still trying to figure out what you want to do and my passion and this, that, and the other, and you got no stability, and you're going from one extreme to the other extreme, and you can't settle down, and you're still living like you're single, and you've been married for two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years, you're still spending time playing video games and doing all this other stuff. Let me ask you, does your, does your wife's heart safely trust in you? It's going to get better, I promise. We're almost done. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Will you do your wife good all the days of her life? She doesn't have to worry about you. Pastor says something, and it stuck with me. He said it years ago, and he's repeated it since then. He says that my wife told me, and no matter what decision I make, she knows, she doesn't, have to, she doesn't have to say anything, she knows that he has thought about her well-being before he makes that decision. That takes years of building a relationship and building trust with your wife. You know that she doesn't just, you don't just get her trust the moment you said, I do. You just got her commitment. It takes time to develop trust, even in a marriage Amen. 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 No, we just, we just tell them if it doesn't work out and they grow apart, just go ahead and get a divorce. It's nonsense. She is like the merchant ships bringing their food from afar. She rises also while it is yet night. Do you? She, you, know what, you know what you see in this passage? She ain't lazy. Are you lazy? You sleep until 10 o'clock every day? And you want a Proverbs 31 wife. Okay. He's known, he's known in verse 23 in the gates where he sitteth among the elders. Are you going to be the guy that gets called to preach and you stand behind a pulpit and you know what, you're, you're preaching up there and you're really shucking the corn and your wife's sitting there with her arms crossed saying, yeah, well... Everything you're saying is a bunch of malarkey, and they think that you're something that you really aren't. Amen, My goodness, man. Think about that. You say, what is that? That's a part of our pressure, gentlemen. You know what is our, you know what our, our issue? We want to rule our house. How's your relationship with your wife? It ain't just bossing around, because guess what? You know what the relationship with the wife is? It's a partnership. It's a partnership. That's why you didn't see the wife in Luke 15, because they were partners, and they were, and they were in agreement. And she trusted him, he trusted her, and yeah, it was tearing her stinking guts out that one of her boys was gonna, about to go out into the far country and want to spend all that, her, that they've ever got, done and given to this boy and everything they've done for this child, and it's ripping mama's heart out, and daddy's got to make a hard decision, and she ain't going to chirp at him because she knows he's doing the right thing. Is that the kind of relationship you have with your wife? Does she know that she can trust you to make the right decision and not fly off half-cocked every time it doesn't go your way? I'm being a little bit rough. I'm sorry. I'm being a little rough. It's Father's Day. It's Father's Day. There's a part of me that wishes to God I had a dad that tell me that kind of stuff growing up. If the relationship between the husband and the wife isn't right, the relationship between them and the kids will suffer. You understand? You say, why is that? Because kids can sense when there's something wrong. And you think you're good at hiding it because you close the door at night. They can still hear it through the walls. And they can see how you interact with one another. And there's no affection there. 
and there's no little sweet nothings, and there's no holding hands, and there's no giving hugs, and there's no goodbyes, and there's none of that, and the kids know something's wrong. Bible-believing households. First to come to church. Big old Bible. How's your relationship with your wife? Dad, fathers, that's the first step. Rule your house. How about this one? The method. The method. I won't go too far into this. Ephesians chapter 6. Because guess what? I don't know what stinking parenting book you've read. And I don't advise any of them. Because I don't, I think I, half the time I tell my wife, I do something. I'm like, that's not in the handbook, is it? I'm sorry. <laughs> that's just not right. I don't know if this is a, you know, Spock approved or whatever. But Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. You know, the Bible gives us some clarity on this. Again, I'm not going to reference some stinking book that somebody wrote that tells you that this is the how-to to be a parent, and if you just do this and your kids will turn out fine. That's not the case. Because if that's the case, Luke chapter 15, pretty good dad... One still went off. And if he's the type of God, the father, you're going to say he's a bad son or bad father? Let me ask you this. Does all of God's children work out all the time? So is he a bad father? No. But there, is, there has to be a method. There has to be some rhyme or reason to what you do because if you don't structure your household, you can't rule your household because you can't rule something that's fluid. It's like trying to contain water while it's still fluid and you don't have a container to put it in. That's why he says, Reuben, he says, what's your problem? You're as unstable as water. Well, that's how some of our homes are. They're just unstable. They got no boundaries. They got, and nothing's, nothing's consistent. And you wonder why the kids act the way they do. There's no structure. Ephesians, again, 6.4, Colossians 3.2. He says, raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What does that look like? Well, I know this. If we're just going by Scripture, Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a little bit of insight into that. Hebrews chapter 12, real quick. He gives us the definition of nurture by defining the word chastening because everybody has their idea of what that is. Verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speak unto you as unto children, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Look at this. Nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Number 2. Uh, verse 6, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. He just told you two types of chastening. There's a rebuke and then there's scourging. There's a physical and then there's a verbal. And, there, and guess what? You want to know the key to ruling your house? And the method is balance. Because if you're too heavy-handed, you'll raise a rebel or a bum. And if you're too light-handed, where everything's just, stop doing that, stop doing that. You stop, let me, let me positive reinforce you. Let me build up your self-esteem so that you realize that, that uh, I have to positive reinforce your, your, uh, your self-esteem to get you through your bad behavior. You're straight crazy. You're stinking nuts. And if you do that and you're not heavy-handed at all, you have no physical side of the discipline, guess what? You'll raise a criminal, or a leech. And so what's the term? Balance, Bible believer. Balance. 
What is the key to the Christian life? Balance. Balance. And finally, I'll say this. The method, the method, or excuse me, the method that we see here in, in chapter 15, every time the father speaks, he speaks to 22, 23, 24, and he speaks in rebuking the elder son in verse 32. When the son decides to rebel in verse number 12, he doesn't say a word. He gives him what he's wanting and he lets him go. You say, what's the problem with that? Teenagers, listen to me right now. We're about to go to youth camp, so I might as well get it out of my system now. If you think threatening your parents with leaving and going to the far country is going to get you what you want from them because you think you've got them over a barrel, because they don't now, because the parents, they get, touch, they get real touchy because they don't, well, if I stand up for this, then I'm definitely going to lose them because you keep flirting with the fact that you're done and you're sick of it. That just shows me how much of the stinking devil's in you. And you ain't fooling anybody. God knows. Because there's been many a parent that refuses to deal with the wickedness of the kids that are sitting in their house all for the sake of, I don't want them to go to the far country. And the kids got their parents over a barrel and you try to use it to your advantage. I'm telling you, God will recompense that upon you, I promise. And parents, shame on you if you allow it to happen. Because all you're doing is enabling and you will raise a criminal, and you will raise a leech, and they aren't any more spiritual threatening you to leave than they are when they actually leave. Amen. The method is consistency. The father says nothing. He gives him the portion and says, all right, man, see you later. Kid's like, well, you're just going to let me go like that? Yep, absolutely. If you, don't want, if you don't like it around here, see you later. I'll be here if you need me. Get out of here, you stinking rebel. You're just wicked as the devil. That wasn't his response. You go to a, you go to an eighteen year old kid and say, "Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna whoop you with my belt." Really? I saw a guy get up at a meeting one time, preach for, at, a, at a tent revival, preach a, preach forty five minute sermon on the key to revival is whooping your kids. Stinking moron! You spend forty five minutes preaching on whooping your kids, and that's going to bring revival to your church. Maybe you don't have a handle on your kids. That's why you're preaching that, right? So so what is it that I'm trying to tell you? Balance. Balance. When he, when he rebukes, when, he, when, he, when, when the elder brother comes to him, and look in verse 32, it says, It was meet that we should make merry and glad for his, of thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. It's measured. It's not too crazy. It's not too little. It's stern. It's to the point. It's measured. He's not telling him. He's, it's not like he's like, oh, don't do this. Stop that. Stop that. Stop that. Warning, 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 warning. And then all of a sudden you get mad and then you get loud. And then the kid knows that he's got that amount of time until you get loud. And then what happens is, is now you're beating them out of anger. And they don't know why they're getting beat. They just know you're mad. You say, what is that? It's a bad method. Well, I spank my kids and it doesn't ever happen. Well, how's your method? How's your method? How consistent are you? Or are you relying on your wife to be the primary disciplinarian? That's what it is. Because you don't want to be bothered with it because you've been working all day. The method is important. I'm not telling you that you need to do a certain thing or whatnot or the other. Whatever it is you choose to do, do it consistently because they need structure. And if they don't have structure, you ain't going to be able to rule your house right. Finally, the last thing. Again, I want to make sure I get all these things in here. We first talked about the mother, and that was partnership. The method, that's leadership. 
And then finally, the man, and that's discipleship. You say, the man. You know what I see? I see a man's heart. I see him when that son leaves, and I can see that man as he says, he gives him the portion of his goods in a bag or whatever, however he gave it to him, and says, son, I'm going to miss you. I love you. And I don't want you to go, but if this is what you want, you go. And he's looking at his son, and his son walks out, and he just looks cold, and he slams the door, and he walks out, and he heads down, and he watches him walk over that hill, and he goes down, and he becomes out of sight, and he's sitting there on the front porch, and that man begins to cry. And I can hear him in his prayers at night when he says, Lord, I did the best I could to live it in front of him. I did the best I could. I did the best I could. I did the best I could. He's in your hands now. Hopefully it was enough. And he's beating himself up. And every night he goes on the front porch, looks for his son to come home. Right? Because after all, the question that you have to ask yourself, gentlemen in here, is who am I? Now analyze that question. I've had to ask myself this question when I was thinking about these, these, these thoughts. Who am I? Not who do I perceive myself to be. Not what, what, not what do I look like in my own mind. My intentions, my motives, right? Because those all may be fine. But when my children or those in my family look at me, the man, who I am, what do they see? Right? I'm sorry. I don't want my kids to wonder what it sounds like to hear me pray. I don't want my kids to have never seen me read my Bible. I don't want my kids to have never seen me respond in church. I don't want my kids to like just think that church was something that we did on Sunday. I'm saying, who are you as a man? Because that's a decision you have to make. How do people view you? And it's not just the people. It's one thing to say, oh, how do my coworkers see me? Or how do the people in church see me? Let me ask you this. How do your children see you? How does your wife see you? Because if I'm going back to, if I'm going back to where we were, and I'm John and Dad, do you think for one second he went to those children and said, hey, listen. He didn't walk out of his four-bedroom house and say, all y'all, it's tense from here on out. You hear what I'm saying? He didn't walk out with a glass of wine in his hand saying, it'll be no wine for y'all. You see that? I can tell you this or that and the other. Naboth's dad didn't come to Naboth to say, son, don't give up the vineyard after he got out of a business meeting with the king and discussing you know, the rates of return on the investment. You say, why is that? Because guess what? How do you disciple somebody? Is how do they view you inside your four walls? How do you live your life? What do they see in you, Dad? You want to know why the Rechabites did it 300 years later? Because of how passionate Jonadab was it and how he lived it when he told him to do it. You want to know why Nabus' vineyard lasted until they took it, the last breath out of his lungs? It's because of the determination and the blood, sweat, and tears, and labor that went into all the fathers before him in that vineyard. 
And they saw the passion behind it. And they saw how serious they were about it. And you know what it did? It stuck with them so much so that it lasted far beyond they were gone. You know what I want? I don't know what God has for me. You know what I want? If the Lord tarries, and for whatever reason, if I'm like my dad and I die when I'm 41, right, and I got less than 10 years left, I want my kids to know that their dad loved God. And that sometimes I had to apologize to him because I was a little too rough. And sometimes I had to walk some things back. And sometimes, you know, I messed up. And I was a bad example. But overall, I was who I tried to be in front of him. And it was trying to be a Christian. Little Aiden comes in our bed yesterday morning. We're talking about being saved. He's been bugging me since he was four about being saved. And I'm like, I ain't talking about it. Get it out of here. And, I mean, you, you try to talk him out of it. You can't. He's five now. He knows he's saved. He's just what he says. He wants to get baptized. I'm like, man, you got to talk to the pastor about that. I'm messing with that. <laughs> we had a talk on Saturday morning. And uh, he's sitting there on my bed. We talked about it. And he says, Dad, I'm saved. He said, I'm going to heaven. I said, how do you know that? Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I asked him to save me, come into my heart. He's in my heart. He says, I don't want to go to hell. Yeah. I'm like, okay, man, neither do I. <laughs> And I said, son, you know, that's just the beginning. I said, because guess what? I said, now there's this thing that we call a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I said, and that's why we go to church. And that's why we listen to preaching. And that's why we pray. And that's why we read our Bibles. And that's why we talk about the Lord. Because we want to develop a relationship. I said, just like, you know, you have friends in school. And the more you get to know somebody, the closer you become. And I said, that's the way it's going to be with you and Jesus. And he goes back downstairs, gets him a bowl of cereal. I come down to, downstairs, and I had to go do something on Saturday morning or something like that. And I got to leave out the front door. He comes and runs up, gives me a hug, and he says, hey, Dad. I said, yeah. He says, thanks for having that talk with me about being saved this morning. I appreciate that my kids love their pastor and their Sunday school teachers, and all that stuff. It takes a community. I get it. I don't want him to ever think that he can't have those conversations with me. Yeah. Amen. Hey, is there a dad in here? Let me ask you something. I know it's long. Dad in here? Let me ask you something. How are you ruling your house? Let me ask you, is it in order? Is it in order? That's what the Lord required of his prophets. He said, get your house in order. It's a big deal. It's probably the most important thing you'll do in your life. I don't care if you're called to preach. What good you're preaching if your house ain't in order? How's your relationship with your wife? How's your, let me ask you this, how's your method? You a little bit sporadic? Because your kids see some chinks in your armor. They know exactly what they can get away with, all this different stuff. Because you, you're, just, you're just trying to do too much. You're not focused enough on what you're supposed to be doing. And let me ask you this. Who are you? What do they see when they see you? You say, I'm not a dad yet. Okay. 
Well, if God could tell Abraham was going to be a good dad by how he treated his wife, let me ask you this. Are you developing yourself now? You trying to set yourself up for it? Is that, can God trust you with that? It's a question that we have to ask ourselves, fathers, in here tonight. Because you want to know something? If we don't raise them, somebody will. And this world's got everything that you could possibly imagine to influence them in a different direction. And if there was ever a time for us to take our job seriously and get our houses in order, men and brethren here tonight, it's now. Amen. So if you're falling into that category, ladies in here, you know, you should be praying for a man just like that. Say, I'm not married yet. Okay, well, then you ought to be praying for it. Can you do better? I don't know. Can you? You answer that between you and the Lord. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Lord, I know that I, I fall short. I don't, I don't say these things from a position of thinking that I know it all or that I've somehow mastered this. I'm far from that, Lord. I, I find myself falling short on these things many times. But, Lord, the Bible is clear about your expectations for us as husbands, as fathers. Lord, the weight and the pressure that you put on us Lord, is, 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 uh, is huge. It's not too much. It's not excessive. It's reasonable. But, Father, help us to rise to the occasion and take our position seriously. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray we have many, many that are starting families, some that have them, some that, Lord, they're all in different phases of life, and now they have grandkids, and, Lord, the, the, the roles change even more then. But, Father, help us to just maintain these three things, Lord, that you've shown us in Scripture to help us rule our houses well. And help us to be cognizant that, Lord, maybe as the men that we've heard from today, Lord, that there would be something left and instilled in our children and our families that will last longer than we do. We love you now and we pray and ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.